This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. I'm Liz, the Chief Mom Officer, and when I'm not busy being the breadwinner of my family of five, I'm stacking Benjamins. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and only two days to go in spring. Time to do something else before spring cleaning starts tomorrow. How about we tackle something easy, like talking to mom and dad about their money? Here to help, we welcome Cameron Huddleston. Plus, looks like some Target date funds are back in the news. We'll talk Target date funds and the Supreme Court in headlines. Plus, we'll throw out the Haven Lifeline to a lucky caller and still leave time for my incredible trivia. And now, two guys who just explained to Joe's mom that they have a podcast to do so they can't help clean. Yeah, nice try, guys. Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. Definitely too busy podcasting. We got this is going to be an all day session. OG, I have retired from cleaning, so there there is there's no more cleaning. I am nef. I, I can't even put it. I was going to say not financially independent. Retired from cleaning. <laughs> so uh, whatever whatever acronym that pronounces. <laughs> yeah, n- n- yeah. Uh, I've, I'm just uh, I'm on the Doug train. I'm procrastinating. I will. Uh, well, welcome to the Procrastinating About Cleaning Podcast. I'm yeah. Joe Salcihi. This is OG across the table from me. It's a good time. There's never uh, a bug problem when you procrastinate about cleaning, so that's good. No, that is, that, that is good. You know what else is good? Is when you don't procrastinate on heading to LinkedIn.com. Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting Stacking Benjamins. My brother did this, and you know why I don't procrastinate, OG? is because it's... Super quick and hooks you up with the right people. Listen to this. LinkedIn Jobs uses knowledge of both hard and soft skills to match you with the people who fit your role the best. Post a job at linkedin.com slash SB and get $50 off your first job post. My brother's so fired up about the person that he hired. It's really good to see. Thanks also to Experian Boost for supporting Stacky Benjamins. Experian Boost can potentially help you establish or increase your access to credit. Boost your FICO score instantly for free. Boost is only available at Experian.com slash SB. We help people boost their FICO score instantly, and we also uh, help them hire the right person. So I think we've done our job there. Now time to make a podcast. OG and I get ready to talk a little Supreme Court. So let's get the party started. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamins Headlines. 
First headline comes to us from Napa-Net, the National Association of Plant Advisors. Let's nerd out here for a second, OG. We've talked in the past about uh, lawsuits and retirement plans at work. Here comes another one, but this one's going all the way to the top. Nation's highest court has just agreed to consider another ERISA case, this one involving a set of target date fund investments. More precisely, when the clock starts on the statute of limitations to file an ERISA lawsuit. This is pretty interesting. You know, well, maybe some people don't know, the Supreme Court's job isn't to take on new lawsuits. It's to decide if the lower court really followed the law on a ruling that already happened. Mm -hmm. So this is the second ERISA case the Supreme Court will consider this term. And there's another one on the way. Just a week ago, the court agreed to consider one involving Fifth Third Bank. In April, there was one against uh, Putnam Investments. And now the court has opted to take a review on one involving Intel's 401k. The lower court ruled in favor of the Intel fiduciary. So let's talk about first OG, because some people might be new to the show. They might not know about all these lawsuits that have been going on in the last few years. First of all, let's talk about how a retirement plan at work is put together and what companies are required to do. And obviously we, we're not going to do all of ERISA today, but just maybe a few of the highlights. Well, companies have to provide evidence that they are working on their employees' best interests. And one of those things includes making periodic reviews of the investment choices within the plan, making sure that the costs associated with those choices are reasonable, and uh, that they do some due diligence on a regular basis regarding the platform, the fund providers, the cost structure, that sort of thing. A lot of times, employers don't really recognize or realize that they're on the hook for this stuff. You know, sometimes they look at it and say, well, that's the 401k company's job. And in some cases it is, but that involves a different level of delegation and a contract, you know, that most employers don't do. So it's almost like they're equally liable, even though the employers are woefully unqualified to be able to perform that due diligence or perform that analysis of some kind. All that due diligence, by the way, means that the people doing the 401k have to be what's called a fiduciary. So that's the legal terminology that they use, which the only reason I bring that up is because I'm about to use that from this uh, Napa net piece. The lower court had ruled in favor of the Intel fiduciaries, meaning Intel, the, the people putting together the Intel 401k plan, noting that while the plaintiff was an Intel employee, he had access to a number of financial documents, including plan documents, fund fact sheets, and summary plan descriptions, which included information about plan asset allocations and an overview of the logic behind the investment strategy. So in other words, you know that big bunch of stuff that you get about all of your funds that people chuck in the trash if they get a hard copy in their mailbox at work or the email that they just delete that comes about the 401k? Mm -hmm. They're saying Intel provided this employee who's suing all of that information. This access gave Sulima, the person who was suing, quote, actual knowledge of the alleged violations three years before he sued. So whether he opened up the email or not, or took the stuff and threw it in the trash, Intel said, hey, you had knowledge three years earlier about how we were managing this stuff. And then he or she sued. 
Yeah. Well, and the reality is, is that none of us read that stuff. We don't read our cell phone contracts. We don't read our direct TV contract. We don't read. I would venture to say that there's probably out of everybody who's listening today, less than half the people actually read their mortgage contract. You know, when you sat down and signed, I mean, Joe, you guys just recently moved up to Michigan, got a mortgage for your house. Did you sit down and read every page of that? No. I mean, you probably did, but (laughs) nerd. It's not uncommon to have those things kind of just hit the trash can. So I kind of sort of side with Intel on this, on this particular issue of, Hey, we've made you aware of it. Like how, how do I, how do I force you to consume the information? Well, here's send it to you. Yeah. Here's, here's what the lawsuit was really about at the time when they first sued Christopher Sulema says later on down in the piece turns out to be an engineer with a doctorate in experimental physics. He's a former Intel employee uh, the suit charged that Intel's investment committee boosted the $6.66 billion profit sharing plans allocation for hedge funds in the firm's target date portfolios from $50 million to $680 million, while at the same time the allocation for hedge funds in the diversified global fund rose from $582 million to $1.665 billion and to private equity investments from $83 million to $810 million between 2009 and 2014. The- <laughs> this is really funny. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you pause for just a second there. This actually dovetails nicely to what we talked about, I think maybe a week ago or 10 days ago on the show, about somebody had a question about risk parity funds. Just the time frame, and I knew you didn't even have to say the years. And when you said what happened, I knew exactly what it was. What had happened, now just kind of put yourself back in those shoes as the fund managers, as the... Of product providers for Intel's 401k, the stock market had just gone down 60%, 50%, whatever. It's 2009. And the soup du jour was risk parity, was alternative investments, was, hey, you should have something that doesn't go down as much during the next recession. This is, this is going to provide this wonderful buffer of upside and downside protection so you don't have to worry about it. Well, guess what happened? The next decade, the stock market goes straight up your funds have gone up 60 cents on the dollar because you were in risk parity funds or hedge funds or private equity or whatever you want to call it. But they did exactly what they were supposed to do. And you're ticked off about it. Not saying that this guy's stuff... Yeah. Not saying he did it on purpose, right? But this is the story that was sold in 2009. And this just goes to prove the point that you can't wish away volatility and still get all the return. It yeah. just doesn't work that way. You have to be okay with the with all the downside in order to get all the upside. I can see why the guy's upset. Oh, yeah. I have hindsight. Absolutely. <laughs> it's been 10 years of the S&P going straight up. And he had a target fund that, you know, had an allocation toward weird stuff. Sure. And I think this is different, though. And I want to be clear on this because you may look at your investment account and go, well, but I'm diversified according to this, you know, asset allocation that I found or whatever. And I'm not doing any better than you know something simple like the S&P. And I'm not suggesting that a diversified portfolio would do better or worse than any particular index. But when you buy an investment product like a private equity fund or a hedge fund or something that is des- specifically designed to take risk off the table, you have to understand that that also takes return off the table. You can't have low risk and all the return. It doesn't exist that way. And the big thing here is also, though, OG, that these hedge funds, 
And these private equity investments, these are monster fee investments. And yeah, often generally, yep. Often, and, and and I don't know how this comes down in a target date fund. This this is a little bit beyond my my scope. You may know. Are those fees internally disclosed before the returns are calculated into the investment or just the investment management fees on the target date fund afterwards counted when, you know, if you go to Morningstar.com, I don't think it's going to include the private equity fee as part of the expense ratio of the fund that you're paying. Well, I'm sure it would actually, but it all comes out in the wash, right? I mean, it's going to, it's going to, when you see, you know, you put in $10,000 and at the end of the year, you now have 11,000, you might say, oh, my account went up 10%. It probably went up 12%. 12%. There was just 2% of fees or it went up 11% and there was a 1% fee. That's the beauty of hedge funds and you know this kind of set it and forget it type of thing if you're on that side of the table is that you just you, you don't actually ever draw your fees from your clients. You know what I mean? Like you just give them what's left. And there's a big difference between going, "Hey, looks like your investments went up 8%" and saying, "Hey, looks like your investments went up 10. I'm going to need two of that back." So they just say, well, it looks like, you know, we're going to take ours before we give it to you, basically. <laughs> we, we've got several things going on here. This is why I brought this lawsuit up. The first thing yeah. is three years later, I can see, you said this earlier, I totally agree. You can see Intel's point of view. We gave you all the stuff three years ago. You, you've had this for three years. Yeah, you could have opted out of this particular program or this fund or whatever the case may be. Number two is an investment goes against you three years later. I had this when I was a financial advisor. It's part of what drove me out of the business, frankly, part that I hated. When when the market went against you, you wanted somebody to blame. And you yeah. see this, you see this with all the FINRA lawsuits, right? The market mm-hmm. goes down, FINRA lawsuits go through the roof. And don't get me wrong, some of them are probably valid because the market goes down and that's when people finally start looking at their stuff and they go, oh, I got a bunch of junk. But on the other side, there's people that just want somebody to blame. I remember somebody... I told them exactly how their investment worked. I remember at that time, there were very few exchange-traded funds. Most of us didn't know a ton about them. They were kind of outliers of your portfolio instead of now. What we all love is it being the center of your portfolio, but we didn't have all the evidence that we have now. So they had a great fund manager. They had a great approach. They'd only lost a percentage of what the market had lost. This was done during the 2000-2002 huge downturn. And I went through all this stuff about how great they were doing when compared to the market, their risk level, still on pace for their goal. And the woman looked at me and said, this is all a bunch of gibberish. I don't care how it works. I hired you only to make us money, never to lose us money. Yeah. Even after we talked about goals, we talked about everything. I'm like, she didn't want to understand her investments, OG. Didn't want to understand it. She just wanted somebody to kick. Well, and that's and that's kind of the same thing about the long-term view. I think that's really important to recognize when you are investing for something greater than just the next couple of years. You have to understand that there's long periods of time where things that you invest in don't do well. And then there's long periods of time where things that you invest in do do well. And you have to recognize that if you've done it correctly, you should have some investments that underperform. That's the that's the point of diversification. You should have some investments that are like sucking wind when everything else is going 
gangbusters because in mathematic terms, we call that correlations. They're not correlated. And that's what you want in in diversification. And it's kind of interesting because now we are, you're talking about this from a negative return standpoint, but I hear it on occasion too. Just, hey, uh, S&P's up 15%, counts up 12. Kind of what gives? (laughs) I'm like, (laughs) I kind of want to say, hey, you greedy SOB. (laughs) The plan's based on eight. So, you know, I'd say we're doing pretty good, but, you know. And we're taking, and we're taking, well, and we're taking 20% less risk than the S&P 5 or whatever the number is. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 It's that, or it's, hey, well, we're diversified and, you know, you can't tell me that you knew that China was going to do bad this next 12 months versus the US or, you know, whatever. So it happens both ways. We always look for the reason why. And this is why I think it's super, super, super important. We put all of our energy on the financial planning component of the work that we do because at the end of the day, you're 99 years old, you're lying in your deathbed, your family surrounding you. Do you seriously look to your financial planner and say, damn, I missed... I'm really ticked off. We only got 8.2%. I really wanted 8.6. Or do you say, I'm really happy that I was able to achieve all the things that I wanted to and I never ran out of money? That's the threshold issue. That is the singular issue. Now, granted, you got to do it correctly and you got to do it with you know the right veracity and that sort of stuff. But nevertheless, um, I've never met anybody that when they get toward the end, they're like, gosh, I wish I would have had another half a point return. It's about goal attainment. And when you have your eye on the prize, when you have your eye on, here's the future, here's what I'm searching for, here's what I'm trying to get to, the other stuff becomes secondary, which I think is the way to do it. I did have a second headline, but we took so long on that one. I think I'm going to save it for later. It's a it's an evergreen headline about uh, retirement planning when you don't have any money. So I think we'll... <laughs> it's called a job. <laughs> I think we'll... We'll tackle that another day. But some big lessons here. And I guess since because I am cutting the second headline, we have an extra minute. This is what I wonder about some of these strategies, OG. You know, JL Collins, The Simple Path to Wealth, recommends take all your money and put it in a single Vanguard fund. And by the way, he's not wrong for people, by the way, that tweeted that I was stirring the pot with JL Collins a couple of weeks ago. I wasn't. JL Collins is not that far off. My question is, if you're going to put all your money in one fund, why wouldn't you take literally 12 minutes more, find the efficient frontier and do it right? Like that's pretty damn simple too. Like we've already taken something that's not broken. It's pretty damn easy to do and cut an amazing 12 minutes of my life off so I can go play video games instead to put it in one fund. But he's not wrong directionally, right? I don't want to make perfect the enemy of good here. But I do wonder when the market heads down for a while, <laughs> well, who's who's going to sue JL Collins? I mean, who's gonna who's who's gonna go? This guy said this was right. He said this was fantastic. Well, nobody's going to sue him. But here's what really happens, and and we have all the data to, to to support this. As recently as earlier this quarter, right, or earlier last quarter, I should say, almost all the money went into fixed income. All the new money. All the rebalancing money went to fixed income. And you say, well, that can't be true. It, it is. Now, people who, who take an active role in their finances and who are interested in doing it the right way are people who are listening to this, who are saying, well, that wasn't me. I thought, thought it was a sale. I, you know, that sort of stuff. 
But the vast preponderance of people, the vast preponderance of money went into fixed income in January, February, March. If you look at Dalbar's study, which comes out every year called the Quantitative Analysis of Investor Behavior, or just the Dalbar study, you'll see the average person, if they bought the average fund, underperforms by somewhere in the neighborhood of 4 or 5% a year. And you go, well, that can't be right. If the average person owns the average fund, wouldn't they get the average return? No. Because they do dumb things with it. We've, so, even, we've even done stories about how these active fund managers that people rip on and say, they say, don't buy, they don't buy, don't buy active funds because of the fact that the manager's an idiot. The, we've seen those studies that show Mark, Mark Hulbert, I think brought this out. Was it, it was Brett Ahrens brought this out, this, this study. Uh, I saw it through his column that the problem with active managers in most cases is not the manager. It's flows. It's the fact that they're forced to make trades because idiots are buying when they shouldn't be and they're selling when they shouldn't be. And managers, by prospectus, have to keep that money invested. The problem isn't the idiot on Wall Street. The problem is us. Yeah, the guy on Main Street. Right. So that's what happens. Not to our listeners, though. No, well, that is no, seriously, if you're listening to this, I mean, I'm sure you're already nodding your head. Go ahead. Yeah. And it is, and it is sad because you are going to find people that are going to go, well, JL Collins was totally wrong. No, he's not. No, no, he's not wrong. You, you decided to blow up your own strategy because you couldn't hang in there. And, and I'm afraid that's what's going to happen. It's pretty bad to blow up your investment strategy, almost nearly as bad as blowing up your credit because there were things out there, OG, that could help you boost your FICO score and you didn't take advantage of them. I feel pretty good. Like on a scale of one to 10, my credit score is like a nine right now. <laughs> I think you're going to say on a scale of one to 880, my credit score is about a nine. <laughs> <laughs> well, because of that, OG, you know that the better your credit score, the easier it is to pay less for those big items that you may need when you need to use credit to buy something. So the question is, why is it so hard to raise your score? Well, now it won't be thanks to Experian. They've launched Experian Boost, a brand new way to instantly increase your credit score for free. A higher credit score can help you establish and get access to credit and preferred rates for the things you need in life. Experian's on a mission to help boost America's credit score, which will help millions of people across the country build and get better access to credit. People all across America have already raised their credit scores with Experian Boost, and you should too. So how does it work? Well, for the first time ever, paying your utilities and cell phone can instantly improve your credit score. Experian Boost works by giving you credit for the bills you're already paying through your bank account, like your water bill, your gas bill, your electric, your cable, your cell phone. So if you pay your bills through a checking or a savings account, you could instantly raise your credit score. It used to take months to see your credit score rise a point or two, but with Boost, you can increase your credit score instantly. Boost is free to use and only available from Experian. Only positive payments are factored into your credit file. It can only help. It can't hurt. In rare situations where your score goes down from boosting, you can instantly disconnect Boost and your credit score will go back up to where it was. Experian Boost can potentially help you establish or increase your access to credit. Boost your FICO score instantly for free. Boost is only available at Experian.com slash SB. That's E-X-P-E-R-I-A-N dot com slash SB. 50 takeaways here, OG. Maybe number one, use things like Morningstar 
to look at your funds through a third party. We didn't even talk about that one. Instead of waiting three years, seeing the results and they're not what you want, and then suing somebody. The second thing is, though, if your funds are are bad, I think because you know immediately that they're not good, you could take a more active role, at least going to HR, talking to people at work about improving the nature of your funds. Maybe it still ends in a lawsuit, but but hopefully not. The, the big lesson here, though, is this idea overall, OG, of trying to get something for nothing. There's going to be downturns in the market, and risk and reward are on the same scale. The longer that you're in a fund that's based on equities or based on real estate, the better you're going to do. Not a single investment, there's no guarantee there, but historically, if you're in an exchange-traded fund or a mutual fund, it's hanging in there. Gotta hang. A little backstory on our guest, Cameron Huddleston, who's upstairs talking to mom. Cameron has written for tons of publications. You've seen Cameron all over the place. She currently writes for Kiplinger. She's written for Go Banking Rates. You've seen her work all over the place, and she's one of our favorite writers. She's also somebody who's a fantastic thinker when it comes to these, these issues, and her ability to break down some complex things is really what makes me admire Cameron. You know, this is a tough one. She's peeling off OG and one that we all need to talk about. And I'm glad that she's able to do it through some great stories in her new book, Cameron Huddleston, talking about mom and dad and talking to your parents about money. Talk about something difficult, OG. I think that's probably the one. I'm literally scrolling through Twitter as you're talking and there's a video of her opening her box, getting a copy of her book. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's so cool. I watched that also, and she said she was about to start crying. It's it's always that's cool. amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's always great. It's always great learning how to talk to mom or dad about money. And uh, well, let's say hello. Introduce you to Cameron Huddleston. And coming down the stairs, it's our good friend Cameron Huddleston. How are you? I am great. How are you? Well, I'm great now that you're here. Thank goodness you're here to save the show today. Oh, I'm so glad to help you out. No pressure or anything, Cameron. No, none at all. You just have to finally make the show make sense. You've written on so many different topics that initially I was very surprised that you wrote on this topic. Like when when I first talked to you about your new book, I was very surprised. But then I found out that this is really personal for you. Like you had a very personal situation. What happened to you that made you want to write this You know, the primary reason is because I don't want people to make the same mistake that I made with my mother. When I was 35 and she was 65, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. The last thing I ever expected to happen. I mean, I I still had kids in diapers when I was 35. Well, let's even go through that because there's probably people... There's probably people out there that have parents that you don't even... You must have seen signs of dementia before then. Like before she was diagnosed, did you even see this coming on? I did. And this is what happened, actually. I'm going to step back even a few more years because I was writing for Kiplinger's Personal Finance Magazine. I was a columnist and living in Washington, D.C., and I moved back to my home state of Kentucky. And one of the first conversations I had with my mother, who actually lived across the street from me, was, Mom, 
I think you need to get long-term care insurance. I mean, I, I didn't beat around the bush. I just said, I think you should do this because she was on her own. She and my father had gotten divorced years before that. And I thought, you know what? It would be great for her to have a way to pay for long-term care if she ever needed it. And so she took my advice. She went and met with an insurance agent and she could not get coverage because of another pre-existing condition. And if I had been smart, I would have said to her, okay, mom, you couldn't get coverage. Let's sit down and talk about what sort of assets you have. Let's create a plan to cover your care, the cost of your care, if you ever need it. Let's talk about what sort of care you would want. But I didn't. Like, why? I'm kicking myself. Yeah, but why not? (laughs) Why didn't I do it? You know, I just, I didn't even realize how important it was to have that conversation. And I'm a financial journalist. And I think the thing is, most people don't. We're not thinking about anyone's finances other than our own. And most of us aren't even thinking about our own finances. We don't have our own financial act together. You know, and, and I did. I had my kids. Actually, it was before I had had my first child. All right. But I was starting my family, trying to get my own financial life together and just didn't even think to have deeper conversations with her about it. Then after I had had um, my first child, And right before I had my second child, I started noticing the signs that you mentioned, Joe. But the question was, is she having memory issues or was it because she had had hearing loss in one ear? You know, and I didn't want to face the truth that it was her memory. Yeah. What were those signs? Like what were the first? So this is why it was tricky. This is why I wasn't sure whether it was her hearing or her memory because she would repeat things like things that I had told her. She would ask me again. And I didn't want to be like, mom, I just told you that, you know, I thought maybe, maybe she just didn't hear the question the first time, or maybe she didn't hear my answer. That's what it was initially, those sort of things. And then it started to get a little bit more obvious, seeing that she was leaving notes to herself around the house, all these reminders, and in her refrigerator, multiple items, like five packages of yogurt, not the same kind or, you know, a couple of cartons of milk or whatever, because she had gone to the grocery store, forgot she had them and bought more. Those little things that suggested that it wasn't just a matter of hearing, it was memory. And it was really became obvious when I was at her house one night, she took me outside to show me this bench she had bought for her garden. We come back inside and a few minutes later, she says, hey, do you want to see the new bench I bought for my garden? Oh, your stomach must have just sank. Oh, yes. Oh my gosh. And I I knew then I was like, this is not a hearing issue. This is a memory issue. And I have to act fast. I have to get my mother in to see an attorney to update her documents. But the thing is, I didn't want to have to be the one to tell my mom, I think you're losing your memory. Talking about money was not hard for me. Telling my mother that we need to have conversations about her money because I think she's losing her memory, that's hard. This is the reason I wrote my book is because a lot of people think they don't need to have these conversations with their parents until there's a health issue, until there's a financial crisis, until there's something that makes these conversations necessary. But the problem is if you wait until then, the conversations are a lot more difficult. You know, people are stressed out because there's a crisis. Emotions are running high. You have to point out to your parent they're losing their memory and that's why you want to have the talk. It's just, it's so much harder. You don't have as many options if you're trying to plan for things. 
your parents might not have the legal documents that allow you to step in and start managing your finances if you need to do that. And that's why I told my mom, we've got to go meet with an attorney. Well, and that's and that's why an attorneys that are listening are nodding their head, but most other people don't know, Cameron, why you got to get that done fast now, but there's a very yes. specific reason you got to get it done fast. Explain that. So, you know, a lot of people think these conversations are important because you want to talk to your parents about whether they have a will, which is very important. You know, if you die without a will, the court and your state laws are going to decide who gets what. And so you want to make sure your parents spell out where they want their assets to go, even if they don't have a lot of assets. But even more important than a will is the power of attorney and the advanced health care directive. You have to be mentally competent to sign these documents. My mother, even though she was starting to have some memory issues, she was still competent enough for an attorney to allow her to sign these documents. And the power of attorney allows someone to make financial decisions for you if you no longer can. The advanced health care directive spells out what sort of end of life care you want. And it also allows you to name someone to make health care decisions for you. But she's got to be competent. Yes. When she signs those documents. Yes. Yes. So if your parent has already had a stroke, if your parent is, you know, more in the middle stages of Alzheimer's, it's too late. It is too late. And then you go to court, you spend thousands and thousands of dollars getting conservatorship for your parent to make these decisions for them. How did you then bring up to your mom that you needed to get some stuff done? Because I think it'd be hard, Cameron, to, to not make her defensive. Like I know a lot of parents, if you say, hey, mom, I think you're losing it, like they, they, they'd get defensive. I did a couple of things because I was very reluctant to tell her directly that I thought she was having memory issues. What I did is reach out to a third party. I called her doctor, whom I knew, and I said, listen, the next time my mother is in there, I know she has an appointment soon. Could you please suggest to her that she get tested for Alzheimer's? And he did. She went in and actually the first test she had done, the neurologist said, well, she's okay. And I was like, that's baloney. She is not okay. And a friend of hers talked her into seeing another neurologist who did diagnose her with Alzheimer's. You know, and in the meantime, I had just said to her, mom, I think we need to meet with an attorney to update your documents. It wasn't like, mom, you're losing your memory. We need to meet with an attorney, but let's do this. This is something important. I don't think you've done it since you and dad got divorced. And if your parents are reluctant to talk with you, getting a third party involved is so helpful sometimes. You know, I used it to get my mother to to get tested for dementia, but you can use this to get your parents to start talking to you about your finances. You can reach out to if they have a financial planner, if they have an attorney, an accountant, you know, someone at their church or their place of worship, a trusted family friend and say, "Hey, listen, I would love it if you could talk to mom and dad and 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 persuade them to open up to me and give me some information about their finances because it's going to give me peace of mind. It's going to give them peace of mind. And the parents are more likely to listen sometimes just up here as opposed to their children because they're still looking at you as that kid. Yeah. Maybe that kid who stayed out too late, even though you're 40 years old and you're a successful doctor now, they're still looking at you as a kid. Now, not all parents are going to think this way, but if you have a parent who's reluctant to talk to you, getting that third party involved can help. And it helped me getting my mom tested for dementia. You know, the, the financial side of things, I was just, you know, pretty straightforward. Let's meet with an attorney. We did that. And then again, the third party helped out because she suggested to us that we go to my mother's bank 
put me on her account as her representative payee and suggested some other steps we should take in regards to her finances. So that got the ball rolling for other conversations with my mother. And the pro doing it takes away a lot of that emotion. Yes. And they're going to listen to the professional because this is what these people do for a living. Yes. Right. Uh, You have a few quotes. I want to quote from the first chapter of your book, which is get over your fear of having the talk, which I'm sure everybody listening is like, oh, I don't want to do this. This is so tough. This is a quote from Jason. Jason says, I still find it challenging to speak about money with my parents. We can discuss religion, politics, and relationships, but money remains a taboo subject. This is this is a lot of families. This is a whole lot of families. Actually, Go Banking Rates did a survey and found that most people would rather talk about politics, relationships. I mean, even some people would rather talk about their parents' romantic lives. Oh boy. <laughs> then then talk to them about their finances because they think it's such a taboo topic. And I get it. It can be. You don't want to look like you're being nosy. You don't want to look like you're being greedy. You don't want to offend your parents. You don't want any of those things to happen. But I really want people to realize this. You know, these are your parents you're talking about. They are going to love you no matter what. And even though the conversation might be a little bit awkward when you first bring it up, they're probably not going to fly off the handle. They're not going to ground you. You're an adult now, even though they might still think of you as a kid, they're not going to send you to your room. Okay. And they might initially balk. They might say, well, this is none of your business. But then what you gently remind them that it is your business because they might need your help someday. And in order to help them, you're going to need to know a little bit of information. You don't have to say, mom and dad, I need to know what's in your bank account because you don't. You just need to say, mom and dad, where do you bank? How are your bills paid? Are they paid automatically? Or if you end up in the hospital, am I going to have to write a check? If I have to write checks for you to pay your electricity, your mortgage, do I have the legal power to do that? Have you named me your power of attorney? I don't need to know the very fine details of what's in every account I just need to know the basics so that I can help you if you do need help. Stay away from the kind of emotional triggers, it sounds like. Yes, yes. And you don't, you know, if you know your parents are no good with money, you certainly don't want to embarrass them. You know, you can, you can acknowledge, I understand this is an uncomfortable topic, but you want to let your parents know that it's going to be a lot more uncomfortable if something happens to them and you are unable to help them out because you have not had these conversations. I'd like to go over that specifically, if you don't mind, which is some of the things not to say, because I think these are important things to know so that we don't step on some of these hot buttons. You've got a whole chapter on this. I know we don't have time to go over the whole book, so I thought this is probably pretty important for our audience. What are some things to avoid when we're talking to mom or dad? One of the key things you want to avoid, it's going to sound a little bit silly or perhaps even strange, saying you you need to do this. You need to tell me, mom and dad. You want to make it about yourself. You want to say, I, not as in a selfish way, I want to know how much I'm getting when you die, but (laughs) I. (laughs) What's in that account, mom? What's in this for me? You don't want it to be about what's in it for you, but you want to say, I would like to have this conversation to give me peace of mind. It would make me feel good to know what sort of planning you would have done. It would make me feel calm, better, at peace, knowing what you have in place, what your wishes are, because I 
want to be able to follow your wishes. Why not start with you? Because it puts people on the defensive. Uh, Think about conversations you have with your spouse or your significant other. Oh my gosh, you are always spending all of our money on things that we don't need. Okay, so you don't want to put people on the defensive saying more like it makes me uncomfortable when you do this. It's about how you feel and not making them feel like they're on the defensive. And so it would make me feel good to know. It would make me happy to know that I can follow your wishes as you get older. It would make me happy to know that I can give you the sort of care you need. And that's why I want to have this conversation, not You need to tell me you need to do this. Mom and dad, you really need to have a will. You really need to have a plan. You really need to talk to me about how much you have in your retirement account. That's going to put them on the defensive. And as soon as you put them on the defensive, they're going to shut down. The conversation is over. Yeah. You focus specifically on not being condescending too. Yes. Yes. And so, of course, you know, if you know that they have not done managed their money well, if you know that they have become victims of scams because they're not aware of what these scams are, you don't want to highlight that. You don't want to say, mom and dad, oh my gosh, these scammers keep calling you and you keep falling for it. You know, come on. You know, you don't want to embarrass them. You don't want to be condescending. And it's not just the words you choose, but the way you say it. You don't want to talk to your parents like you're talking to a small child. Even if they are older and they're not making good financial decisions, you want to treat them with the same respect that you would want your own children to talk to you if they were having this conversation with you. I noticed too, and in your book, you reference quite a few elder care people who say these things that, um, uh, well, and even in my experience, when I was a financial planner, these people that you're talking to are very smart. And what the indirect problem is going to be isn't that they're not going to do what you say. They're going to stop sharing with you. Like the biggest thing that would happen, I think, if you're condescending is that they like like your mom has had dementia. It didn't mean she wasn't smart. And the reason that she was leaving notes for herself all the time was because she's smart and she's finding these workarounds. And I feel like sometimes people talk to people like they're they've somehow become dumb. Yes, because you look at your parents and they're aging. You know, ideally, if you had these conversations when you're younger and your parents are younger, I don't think you're going to run into the, the 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 condescension. You know, you're you're if you're still in your 20s and 30s, the dynamic between you and your parents is a little different. But you're all if you're already in your late 40s, your 50s, and your parents are in their 70s and they're starting to have that mental decline, that decline in ability to manage their finances, which happens, which happens to everyone, regardless of whether you have dementia, you're looking at your parents as no longer as capable as they were. And that can come out in the way you talk to them. And if you talk to them like you're talking to a child, they will shut down. They're going to be embarrassed. They're not going to want to talk to you. So you want to avoid that condescension. You want to avoid being critical. You say to talk to siblings. Do you do that after you've talked to your parents, do you do that before? I mean, does this end up seeming like an intervention where you and the siblings all corner mom in the room and say, mom, we got a problem. No, you definitely don't <laughs> want to do that. <laughs> you know, it can be a little bit like an intervention. You just don't want to corner mom and say, we have a problem. You want to talk to your siblings beforehand because you want to get on the same page with them. A couple of things you want to discuss. All right. Who's going to have the conversation? 
It might be all of you. If you all get along well, it might be one of you and it might not be you. It might not be the person who's reading this book because you might not have the best relationship with your parents, but you might say, you know, Hey Bob, I know you live closer to mom and you have a better relationship with mom here. I want you to take this book and read it. Okay. Because I think you're the best person to have this conversation with mom. It's not me. I've never been as close. So you're going to figure out who's going to have the conversation. Maybe it's all of you. You want to figure out how you want to start the conversation. What's the best approach to take. And you also want to talk about the roles you as the children are willing to accept because maybe you're better with finances, but your brother lives closer. So your brother might have to be the one to provide the actual care while you're in charge of the money. Figure these things out before you sit down with mom and dad. So basically you're coming to them on the same page. You know, mom and dad, we've all been talking. We love you. We care about you. We want to be able to provide the same sort of care that you gave to us. And so that's why we want to have this conversation. You know, and we've talked already about, you know, what we're able to do to help you out. And so going in on the same page and letting your parents know that you've had these discussions might ease some of their fears because a lot of times parents are afraid to talk to their kids if they have done some planning because they don't want to talk about their wills and what they're leaving behind for kids because they don't always divvy things up equally and they don't want the kids to fight. And so if they know the kids have already had conversations and kind of the kids are saying, we don't care what we're going to get. We just want to make sure you get the best care. We want to make sure we follow your wishes. It can things easier. Yeah, much smoother. The uh, the book is yes. the book is called Mom and Dad We Need to Talk. You cover everything here from getting over your fear, which we talked about a little bit today, but you go much more into detail. Don't wait. You know, it's always better to have the conversation tomorrow, but it really is not. Uh, reasons your parents might be reluctant to talk. What happens if you don't have the conversation? That's an ugly chapter. Uh, start by talking to your siblings. What not to say. Conversation starters. A step-by-step approach. So you've got the whole paint-by-numbers here. Talking to them about scammers, estate planning documents, long-term care. It's all here. How exciting is it, by the way, to have your name on the front cover of this book? It's very exciting. (laughs) It's very exciting. You know, I just, I really, I really hope people read this book because I, like I said, I don't want people to make the same mistake I made with my mother. I, it is a tough conversation. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. And it's so important that people have it because if you don't, once something happens, you just don't have as many options to deal with things. And it's as scary as it might seem. I think the consequences of not having the conversation really are a lot scarier and you, you don't have to go through this alone. Like I did. Hey there, money aficionados. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And when I said that we'd procrastinate one more day before cleaning the basement by talking to mom about money, I didn't realize how involved that would be. Well, how else to put off spring cleaning? What could we do? What could we... Oh, I know. My trivia segment. Today, we're going to take you around the entire basement in the incredible time of just one short hour in honor of this being the anniversary of Steve Fawcett taking off on his record-breaking balloon flight around the world back in 2002. 
We'll see all the great things the basement has to offer from the, uh, oh, there's the water heater over there in the back, and then there's that the chest of God knows what under the stairs. And, of course, we'll make a stop by our mic stand and the rickety card table where I do all my incredible work. <laughs> That's where all the magic happens, right, folks? Ah, you know, all I need now is an assistant, and we could be full-fledged adventurers, just like, uh, you know, my favorites, Phileas Fogg and Passerpertout. Long-time listeners probably picked up on the fact that that's one of my all-time favorite stories, you know, the Around the World in 80 Days, but you knew that, right? And that includes both movies, the one in 56 and the one in uh, 04. In fact, in the 2004 film, Steve Coogan was amazing as Fog, wasn't he? Parsa Pertout was great, too, but who was he played by? You know, that, uh, that martial arts guy. Oh, that's a little bit embarrassing. I usually do better under pressure. Hey, you know what? Let's turn it into the trivia question. Which actor stars as Parsa Patout in Around the World in 80 Days in 2004? I'll take a quick pit stop for some snacks and a big gulp, and I'll be right back after I gather some junk food, and we'll have your answer in just a minute. Stick around, folks. Well, as I mentioned earlier, OG, my brother is in the middle of hiring people, and I mentioned that he should go to LinkedIn Jobs, and he took my advice. And by the way, he also used my code that we're going to share here a little bit later, and he had a ton of people, and he's used other resources that we'll leave unnamed for today. But as you already know, OG, hiring's not as simple as putting an ad in the paper, posting to a job board. When you're juggling hiring and everything it takes to grow your business, it's important to reach those right candidates at the right time. And that's where LinkedIn comes in. We use LinkedIn here in the basement more and more to share our message about the shows. By the way, you can hook up with us on LinkedIn today. Just look up Stacking Benjamins or you can look up uh, me personally, and I'm happy to connect with you. More than 610 million members visit LinkedIn every day. Everybody wants to make connections, learn and grow as a professional, discover new job opportunities. In fact, LinkedIn members add 15 new skills to their profiles and apply to 35 job posts every two seconds. How about that? That's how they make sure your job post gets in front of people with the right hard skills and soft skills to meet your role requirements. Things like collaboration, work ethic, adaptability. I'd say when it comes to a work ethic, oh, geez, good on that collaboration he's really good adaptability not so much uh linkedin does the legwork <laughs> to match you to the most qualified candidates so you can focus on hiring the person who'll transform your business to get fifty dollars off like my brother did on your first job post go to linkedin.com slash sb again that's linkedin.com slash sb and you'll get fifty dollars off your first job post terms and conditions apply Welcome back, Global Explorers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and this right here, well, this is my incredible trivia. So by now, you've seen the relics of time inside the treasure chest, including our favorite pair of bell bottoms. Oh, geez, did wonders with that bedazzle gun, didn't he? He's amazing with that thing. Joe's old super techno game that we played back in his college days, and of course, our sacred eight-track tape featuring disco's greatest hits. 
You've met our very own Charlotte, and you've seen her web behind the water heater, which keeps this place bug-free. And uh, actually, people tell us that the lack of bugs is a pleasant and welcome surprise after the smell of must and old cardboard pizza initially hits them on the way down the stairs. But, and this is the important part, did you figure out the answer to my trivia? Here was that question one more time. Which actor stars as Passerprotout in the 2004 version of the film Around the World in 80 Days? If you're thinking Rush Hour or Kung Fu Panda, Enter the Dragon and The Karate Kid, but all you can come up with is the martial arts guy, well, that's what I was thinking before the break. But after a quick Alta Vista search, I discovered it was none other than Jackie Chan. That dude's amazing. He played the bank-robbing, secretly martial arts badass valet to the eccentric inventor Phileas Fogg, played by Steve Coogan. Haven't seen it? <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes gave it 32%, but I give it a big Doug endorsed thumbs up. It was a fun ride, but enough about that. Let's finish the basement tour, right, shall we? You haven't even seen my hockey cards yet. Hey, whoa, where's everyone going? Tour's not even over yet. I haven't validated your parking. Come on back. Did you collect hockey cards, OG? Uh, no, no, I don't. I'm not a collector. Come on, you grew up in Michigan. Hockey. What's that got to do with anything? Saginaw Gears. Weren't you a Saginaw Gears fan? <sighs> no, no. That's no. that's so sad. Wasn't even a Wings fan. Been to a number of Wings games, but uh, so fun. Yeah. Hey, let's throw out the Avon Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Avon Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first. And Laura told us on Facebook that she values board games and the art of war. And that's somebody who's been listening to the show. Looks like Laura's channeling Joe, I feel, maybe slightly. Laura should try the war of art. Also, which is my favorite book. A fine book, but way different than the art of war. <laughs> it is kind of different. Substantially different. Good messages. But they say your loved ones in your time. What's better than dragging your loved ones through the book, The Art of War? Probably not good. But take them through a board game. Mm, that's good. It's why they've made buying quality term life insurance actually simple. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now to get a free quote. Their application's simple. It's online. Get an instant coverage decision. Prices are super affordable. And of course, the policies are issued by Mass Mutual, more than 160-year-old insurer. I like that they're innovative OG and they're backed by a company that's been here for a long time. Here's a guy who hasn't been waiting a long time. Dave, let's throw out the Avon Lifeline to him. Say hi, Dave. Hi, Joe and OG. This is Dave from North Dakota. First off, I want to say I truly appreciate the knowledge you provide on the Stacking Benjamins podcast. My question is this. My wife and I are debt-free, including our home, and have fully funded our kids' college. We both max out our 401ks and Roth contributions up to the federal limits. We fully fund an HSA and max out one additional Roth IRA. This is due to having an existing trad IRA in play. Currently, our balance in retirement funds is roughly $1 million. We've been contemplating an opening a taxable brokerage account so that we'll have additional funds available outside of our retirement in case we choose to retire in the next six to nine years, at which time we'll be around 55 years young. Is there any tax implications that we should be considering or anything we should look at doing differently? Thanks, and keep doing what you do. Nice job, Dave. 
Thanks for the question. And hello, North Dakota. North Dakota. That'd be awesome. I've been through South Dakota, never been through North Dakota. Wouldn't that be fun? Sure. Absolutely. Road trip. Uh, OG, what do you think? Well, the hierarchy goes uh, pretty much as he's gone through it, right? So you've maxed out all the workplace plans. You've maxed out your uh, HSA plan, taking care of a Roth IRA. You could also, even though you have a traditional IRA on the other side, you could also contribute to a non-deductible IRA and just kind of bank all those non-deductible contributions for later if you wanted. But you're right. When it comes to thinking about early retirement or retirement pre-59 and a half or even pre-55, it makes sense to start thinking about, well, where are we going to get the money from if we need to live on something? And uh, the next logical place is a regular brokerage account. As far as tax implications and things like that, nothing off the top of my head that's too crazy. I mean, you will be taxed based on how the money performs in the account as it performs in the account. So if you have an investment that produces a dividend this year, you'll pay taxes on that dividend this year. If you have an investment that you sell at a profit this year, you'll pay taxes on that profit this year. So it's kind of a pay tax as you go type of thing. Of course, most of us have our ETFs and mutual funds set to dividend reinvest. So when you get the dividend, it automatically buys more shares of the product that it came from. Doesn't preclude you from getting having to pay taxes on it. You still have to pay taxes on the dividend, unfortunately, but it takes care of that operationally automatically uh, at the brokerage company. And then if you're investing for the long term, you'll be able to control the capital gains taxes, the gains that you'll, or I'm sorry, the taxes that you'll pay when you sell it because you'll have control over that. So there's not, there's not a lot of tax bill coming. I mean, you get a million bucks in there and you start kicking off $25,000 a year dividends, you'll notice it on your tax form. But between now and then, you might not. I think the great thing that people in our community do really well is something the larger world doesn't do well. You know, we talked about a lot of our listeners will think about downturns in the market as sales, which is a fantastic way of thinking, keeping that long-term approach. But we also, OG, when you look at studies, people don't look at the tax advantages of investments as much as they they should, right? They don't consider the tax shelters. I think we do a pretty good job of that, our community, Mm -hmm. based on the letters that we get. That part's good. I'll tell you, though, There are people I've noticed in our community that spend way too much time. Like we go overboard and we're so worried about friction on our money that we are putting the cart before the horse. We're worried a lot about the taxes and not enough about flexibility. And I'm not saying Dave's doing this. I'm just saying that the goal here is to have Bill Gates tax bill. It's always about having more money. And if we can have more focus on that first then tax advantages second. So I love I love what Dave is doing for that reason because yep. he's giving himself some flexibility by not having it inside a tax shelter. And you and I, when we look at taxes, we look at you know money coming in pre-tax and out uh, uh, being taxed. We look at money going in with no real tax advantages coming out tax-free. Those are two sides of what we call the tax triangle. And this third side that a lot of people in our community forget to develop is that flexibility side. And you see these people too late, OG, when they're like, hey, I'm 45 and I want to retire early. Can't do it because all my money is stuck in a place, you know, stuck in an IRA where I can't pull it out that easily. I think in Dave's case here, if he's got six or seven or eight or nine years to go, he should be able to accumulate a pretty decent amount there. Yeah. Yeah. Nice job, Dave. Congratulations on the hard work you put in so far. 
Thanks for writing. That's a great call to the Haven Lifeline. If you want to call the Lifeline with your question, head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. And uh, not only will OG and I answer your question, we'll also, more OG than me, really, answering your question, we'll also uh, have Gertrude send you a Greatest Money Show on Earth t-shirt, which is the code's coming your way, Dave. That's going to do it for today. Thanks to everybody who's left us a review of this here podcast. Mom's putting this one on the fridge this morning as I was walking down to the basement. OG, look, check this out. Five stars from Shinvestor, best all around financial podcast. Boy, there's no pressure there, is there? Yeah. But he's right. <laughs> he's totally right. I've been listening to Stacky Benjamins for a few years now. It's the best financial podcast, hands down. I usually listen to it while working out at the gym, find myself chuckling out loud, which makes the workout a lot less tedious. Good balance of interviews, questions and answers, and headline discussions. Highly recommend. Well, thanks for that, Shinvestor. Makes it easier for us to tell mom that we've got a lot of podcasting to go. So if you guys don't mind, we're going to end the show. But OG and I are going to stay down here so we can pretend we're just going to keep talking so we can avoid spring cleaning, which mom's pretty excited to do since there's only two days left. All right. That's going to do it for today. Doug, man, you got it from here. What should we have learned today? Well, Joe, first, worried about the difficult discussion with parents about money? Go ahead and worry, but don't wait. Set a plan, involve your siblings and start talking. Everyone is worse off, including mom or dad, if you don't. Second, that target date fund you got? Instead of suing someone, check the fees. Head to a third-party site like Morningstar.com and you'll easily see if what you're paying is in line with the industry. But the big lesson? Don't hand OG your Mike Wanchuk hockey card. I know he never made the pros, but that guy was the best center the Kalamazoo Wings ever had. He was brilliant. Seriously, OG, give me back the card, man. Give me my Wanchuk card back. I'll trade you a donut for it. Mmm, donuts. <laughs> there you go. A big thanks to Cameron Huddleston for stopping by the basement. You can get more from Cameron at her aptly named site, CameronHuddleston.com, or through our show notes at StackingBenjamins.com. This show was created by Joe Saul Cihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I just jumped the shark. SB Podcast may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. Thanks to Joe's mom for agreeing to drive to the Sizzler. I think the conversation she and I need to have right about now is the one where I explain why she needs to buy the shrimp appetizer.
The trivia today, OG, was about around the world in 80 days. Today commemorates uh, way, way, way back in 2002. Do you, do you remember Steve Fawcett going around the world? <clears throat> no. <laughs> you really don't. It's funny because when my kids were young in the 90s, like I don't remember any pop music from the 90s. I don't remember any uh, movies from the 90s. Like nothing. But 2002, just to take people back. I, I didn't have kids in 2002. <laughs> well, that you claim. Nice. <laughs> uh, that's horrible. That is very, that is very horrible. It's not true. Not true. But this is, I want to go to this BBC archive talking about when uh, Steve Fawcett was just about to finish his around the world balloon flight. He's a Chicago millionaire who's never been content just to make money. Steve Fawcett's spirit of adventure is reminiscent of a bygone age. Today, a combination of wind power and technical expertise took him into the record books. Uh, guys, nice going, Lou. Come on. And a slightly sci-fi moment, the man himself hooked up from his capsule to address the press. It's was enormous uh, relief and uh, satisfaction because I put... Everything into this, all of my efforts, all of my skills, and finally, after six flights, you know, I succeeded, and it's a very satisfying experience. Steve Fawcett lifted off from Northam in Western Australia two weeks ago. Storms over the Pacific meant that it took him eight days to reach South America. He crossed the Atlantic in just three days, and then the final leg over the Indian Ocean. Today, he crossed the finishing line south of Australia. He's due to land north of Adelaide tomorrow. The lone adventurer nearly died on one of his previous attempts. This was another failed enterprise four years ago. Then he was with his longtime friend Richard Branson, who's paid him this tribute. All of us who knew Steve Fawcett knew that if anybody could pull it off, it would be Steve Fawcett. Um, and what he's accomplished has been nothing short of remarkable. So following his record-breaking trip, Steve Fawcett says he's now looking for a new challenge. After coming down to Earth tomorrow, he'll start planning for his next venture. He wants to fly a glider into the stratosphere. Of course, sadly, later, Steve Fawcett uh, passed away on one of those adventures. Uh, oh, really? That's too bad. Yeah, he crashed in the western U.S., and it took them a long, long time to actually find his, uh, to find his remains uh, crashed in a plane. Hmm. But that was, I remember, I remember my young kids and I following this. My kids were... I think seven at the time that this happened. And it was, it was really neat every day for two weeks to follow kind of where he I was. was. going to say, it sounds like he did it way faster than 80 days. Yeah. Two weeks. How about that? Yeah. It, it's just amazing. And I love how the BBC reporter back in 2002 talking about the, a little sci-fi moment. Cause we actually were able to talk to him from his balloon. It's amazing. <laughs> I like, I like his interviews. Like, let me get, let me tell you guys how, how great I am. This was all about me and my ingenuity and my experiences and uh, me, 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 oh, me, 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 me. Steve Fawcett was not, was not humble, but yeah. he was an adventurer and it was, it was a great time. I remember how many people uh, followed that and how Well, of course he was. made it in two weeks. He went over the small part of the world, oh. the bottom part. Dude, always somebody throwing shade on great stuff. Yeah. Oh, If he would have gone around the equator, it would have taken at least 17 days. <laughs> 
Oh, I see how you did that. If I were to do it, you only I mean, ran. I'm, I'm not even going to do it because it'd be so boring. I would do it so fast and <laughs> just be so amazing. Oh, you only ran a marathon. You didn't break a record. Big deal. <laughs> Anybody can run for a long time. <laughs> oh, you broke the high jump world record. It's not like you broke the pole vault world record. Yeah, I yeah. see. Yes, try to do that with a stick. Yeah. And you need upper body strength and lower body strength. So, well, you know, what then, dude? Yes, right, right. That's that's fantastic. It was it was a great memory as we were putting the show together about uh, about Steve Fawcett. Back when you were on the balloon team? Back in Ottu? <laughs> Have you seen, by the way, that Jackie Chan movie, The Around the World in 80 Days? No. Your kids are at the age that might be that might be a lot of fun. It's it's really dumb and it's really fun. So Okay. I like dumb things. I'm in. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.